0: It's Monday, November twentieth. Welcome to Market Fools. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Markerman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. You now. Fair to say, this episode almost didn't happen. I think that's legitimate. Let there be light to say.
1: Or perhaps it would have been just done another way. Uh, Possibly. Here's what happened at
0: Full Global Headquarters this morning a block wide power outage. (laughs) And uh, that was surprising for a few reasons, not the least of which is it is a gorgeous day outside. There's no storm rolling through town. This is not a cloud in the sky. This is a picturesque November day in Alexandria. And the power went out about 45
1: minutes before we were supposed to start taping. And we, but. Well, the upside to that is that it was a beautiful day to go ahead and walk out of the building and go to our local Starbucks for a uh, refreshment and, you know, just take a few minutes to unwind from this stressful, the long, hard Monday morning.
0: (laughs) Uh, We're going to dip into the full mailbag. We're going to start with the news in the automotive industry. Shares of Volvo are up this morning on the news that Volvo has struck a deal to sell 24,000 vehicles to Uber starting as early as 2019. Financial terms not disclosed, Taylor, but suffice to say, I mean, come on, they're getting paid something.
2: Yeah, no, I've seen uh, elsewhere that they're up to potentially $1.4 billion for the cars to be delivered between 2019 and 2021. So, yeah, this just extends the partnership that these two companies have already been working on in cities like Pittsburgh and San Francisco, with just a couple hundred test vehicles for Uber and Volvo, you know, still having a passenger that can take control of the wheel, but largely these cars are driving all by themselves, picking up passengers and dropping them off. And uh, I haven't seen any issues to date that they've been working on this. Um, and this looks like the future to me in terms of automobiles and fleets of autonomous cars being purchased by the likes of Uber, Lyft, UPS, FedEx, um, something that I foresee continuing and
1: accelerating over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a great. Step in the move towards adding this technology to society. And I mean, I think one of the things that gets lost in this a lot because we like to talk about it, and it's just such a uh, a topic that's at the forefront of financial media today. Uh, the whole autonomous vehicle movement. It, it this is an additive function, right? This is something that serves as additive to society, it's not something that is trading one out for the other, right? We're not talking about, well, you're going to take my car away from me, and now I just have an autonomous car and nobody's going to be driving their cars. This is more about adding you know, a useful technology to places where it's needed most. I mean, I'm likely not going to need an autonomous car for my purposes, I mean, I still need to drop the kids off at school and come to work, but it is it is about um, adding more, and it reminds me of um, a question, a poll that Aaron Bush posed on Twitter a little while back, not too terribly long ago, and it was really good because it it just it's great conversation sort of evolved from it. But the poll basically was when when you look at this move towards self driving cars, what group? holds the most power in this relationship? Is it the car manufacturers, the ride-sharing companies, or is it the chip or tech creators? And and I mean, so I I, I was it started making me think, and we kicked some ideas back and forth. Ultimately, I mean, kind of the idea was that chip and tech creators that kind of gets commoditized at some point. Sort of the nature of hardware, cars, same thing, very capital intensive. Um, was it Intel that bought Mobileye? I believe. Or, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So they're trying to um, tap into that market. It was interesting. The poll out of seventy two votes, more than half the people voted for chip and tech creators. Mm-hmm. I felt very good about my vote, which was for the ride-sharing companies, and the reason why I felt that good about that vote is because that was also Aaron's vote, and I tend to like kind of how he thinks. (laughs) Um, But, but I mean, generally speaking, that is like you look at these ride-sharing companies, Uber and Lyft, and, and whoever else you know comes from this, and they are the ones that are building that network and have the opportunity to provide sort of that long tail of service. So you get that network built, you get the infrastructure in place, and then you potentially have a very long Tail of revenue and profits that you can generate from that network. It does require extremely long-term thinking, which thankfully is sort of how we approach things here. Um, so, so it's always worth noting these are the very early days of this movement, but but very cool nonetheless. It's one more reason I wish Uber were a public
0: company today, so we could see what is happening with their stock. Because I agree with the long-term <laughs> thinking, but I think if Uber was a public company and they were stroking a check yeah. <laughs> for one point, however many billion dollars, their shares would be down a little bit because they they will have to pull off a a switch that will be difficult in general and it would probably be harder if they were a public company and it is the we've got drivers right now and eventually we need to flip to Not having drivers. Well, if you
2: imagine, that's probably the highest cost outside of like insurance or something along those
0: lines. But the cars they're buying aren't free. They're not cheap. No, that's true.
2: But the payback period—you imagine, (laughs) like if you're talking about these autonomous trucks, they're talking about the payback period being less than less than a year or two. So, um, and these fleet vehicles are likely going to last longer than a year or so. So, certainly, see them making money off of it and came across an interesting think piece from Bob Lutz, former chairman of General Motors and former head of their product development and he says within 15 to 20 years human cars will be legislated off the roadways in the United States. He gives it less than 20 years.
1: Really? See the only reason the only reason why I I would be skeptical of that claim is because I don't think we actually have the infrastructure in place at a national scale to accommodate Self-driving vehicles, like I mean, you got you need to have a road system that is obviously very well delineated, and marked, and uh, it, to me, I mean, it's going to take maybe a little while longer to build yeah. to build that out. I'm not I'm not saying we couldn't get in that direction. I, I I tend to think we ultimately will be a hybrid. I mean, of of sort of both. It really is. It's a big country. Depends on where you live. I mean. Folks in Moultrie, Georgia, I don't think have really one care in the world about a self-driving car, right? But they also have, like, two stoplights down there, and hey, listen, that's OK. Up here in Northern Virginia, a bit of a different uh, tale, certainly, if you get into something like D.C. or you're looking at New York City, where uh, this this could solve a lot of problems. But I think when we talk about the, the recouping your costs mm-hmm. in this, I mean, if they do this well, well, then all of a sudden you're looking at a network that also has a lot of pricing power too. Mm-hmm. And so, whether you're Uber or Lyft, I mean, you're going to to be able to demonstrate that value pretty quickly. And if you can demonstrate that compelling value, well, then you know you can eat prices up a little bit here and there. Obviously, uh, they talk about times where demand is higher than others, like New Year's Eve or whatever it may be. A lot of opportunities, I think, just to demonstrate value through these networks over time, which. In the end, I mean that really should whittle down that that sort of recoup uh, timeline. In, in, in all things considered,
0: you and Aaron Bush may, in fact, be correct in terms of which group is going to hold the most power. But would you at least agree that whoever is the leading chip maker? That company stands to benefit enormously. There's no question.
1: I mean, there's absolutely no question there. I mean, we see that history is is just very clear that in in the beginning of any any new sort of disruptive market, I mean, the the company that is responsible for the technology has a tremendous advantage there until you know that technology sort of proliferates and and is uh, mimicked or copied or whatever. So, I mean, there is a period of time there where um, the technology providers. Have a great opportunity to to profit immensely from this. Um, at the end, though, I think I think we also see like even Apple with its brand power mm-hmm. and and really good hardware. I mean, even their margins are coming down as they're having to start offering more price points for their products. So, it's hardware, generally speaking. Um, tails down towards the end stages of any disruptive market.
2: You mentioned Apple, one company we've liked in Stock Advisor Canada that could potentially um, be a big player here is Magna International. Um, they make a lot of car parts. Magna? Magna International, yeah, it's uh, make a lot of car parts for for the big manufacturers uh, in the world, but they also have complete vehicle um, production capabilities, and so. Um, they were actually rumored a couple of years ago to be approached by Apple potentially to to manufacture an Apple driverless car that has since uh, kind of pittered out. But um, I, certainly, if you see these fleet companies approaching a company like Magna to say, "Hey, we don't want to go through a BMW or a Volvo or somebody. We want our own vehicle to these specs. Here it is. Can you build it?" Um, it's a company that's been building out its autonomous capabilities quite dramatically, working with Intel and BMW. Um, we just haven't recommended it as of late because we're a little nervous about the
0: automotive cycle, but um, a company like that could be one to look at long term. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool I should mention before we actually get to the email, this is a short week for us because it's Thanksgiving this week. So it is. we're here through Wednesday. No
1: show on Thursday. I bought a twenty-three pound turkey over the weekend. What? Yep. I took my younger daughter to horseback riding, and there's a Wegmans out that way. So, you know, I'm leveraging my time and decided to get some grocery <laughs> store shopping done out of the way. You know, just knock out some stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, How many people are you having over
1: for dinner? So, we're having our family of four and then another family of four um, plus one. So, uh, nine people total. Now, granted, four of those nine are kids, and they're probably not going to eat a whole heck of a lot of turkey. Listen, man. More for you. Thanksgiving is basically about two things for me at this point. It's about lighting the fire in that fireplace as early as I can on Thursday morning and keeping it going all day long and roasting the biggest turkey I possibly can. So I think I've got things laid out in pretty good pretty good position here.
0: Are you looking forward to Thanksgiving dinner or are you more looking forward to the next day? Leftovers.
1: I'd say equally, but I, when I got to work today and I saw on Twitter, Emeril Lagasse tweeted out this recipe for uh, turkey bone gumbo. Essentially, it's a way to make uh, it's a gumbo recipe with your leftover turkeys and the bones for the broth. and really, So I am very excited to make that gumbo recipe this year as sort of the leftovers to go with, of course, the sandwiches and perhaps turkey bolognese and whatever else may nice. enter our kitchen.
0: MarketFooleryFool.com is our email address from Logan Grant. Who writes, I recently finished reading the book The Outsiders, Eight Unconventional CEOs and Their Radically Rational Blueprint for Success. As General Electric's new CEO John Flannery shares the details of his capital allocation changes, I noticed many similarities to specifics discussed in this book. These past CEOs with phenomenal track records made drastic changes, such as selling off poor-performing businesses, cutting their dividend to make better use of free cash flow, and cutting unnecessary operating expenses. While these changes scared away many investors in the short-term, they added remarkable per-share value in the long-term. Could this be a similar story for John Flaherty? Uh, Flannery, excuse me, at GE. I hope to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for all you guys do. Uh, great question, uh, and thanks for listening, Logan. Uh, I should mention real quick: this morning, before the power went out, and thankfully, I wasn't here in the studio when the power went out because I think this is the single worst room in the office to be in because there are no windows. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I taped an interview with Nell Minow that's going to run on Motley Fool Money this weekend, and one of the things we talked about was Flannery and GE and the latest. Pretty dramatic shakeup with the board of directors. But, uh, Jason, to Logan's question, you've read The Outsiders that's mm-hmm. you're a fan of that book
1: yeah I thought it was a good book I mean the only criticism I honestly would have at it, it's sort of it gets a little bit redundant yes <laughs> um, because it tells I think eight CEOs uh, all very similar stories they kind of got to where they um, ended up with a lot of the sort of the same uh, strategies mm-hmm. and, and I mean we kind of covered that I think in the question but regardless the, the author could have knocked it out and <laughs> he, <laughs> like four or five CEOs <laughs> I mean probably but you know I think good investing is always a About sort of sort of reinforcing those good lessons, and so for for a lot of reasons, it was a good book. It was enjoyable, uh, easy, quick read. Um, And I was looking through the 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 CEOs that he chose. I mean, it wasn't just arbitrary uh, arbitrarily that that he chose them. It was um, he took a couple of of, uh, measures. He said the CEOs had to meet two classes. There was an absolute returns test, which said they had to have better returns relative to the S and P. Than Jack Welch did during his 20 years at GE, and then they also had to material out materially outperform their peer groups. So Jack Welch, I mean, if you look at what he did with GE during his time there, I think it was 81 to 2001 or something like that. I mean, shareholders really won under his tenure. Now, obviously, uh, Jeffrey Immelt—it was sort of the opposite case there. He didn't—he didn't really return much of anything. As a matter of fact, I think shareholders lost. <laughs> yeah, you lost if you bought it. And so, uh, I—you know—it's the pessimism with GE is so rampant today, and I get it. It should be, but I think that the pessimism today is just reflective of some hard decisions that needed to be made that should have been made. 10 years ago, or or maybe seven years ago, but any which way you cut it, there were decisions that were basically put off that should have been made. And so, that's where I, I feel like Flannery is getting in here and making some calls early on to say, look, before anything happens, before we can be successful pursuing healthcare and airlines and um, the power segment, of the, power segment yeah. of the business, we're going to need to get our, our books in order. We need to have we need to have our numbers in such a way we can we can attack this as opposed to having to just constantly play defense, and and so he's looking to not only make those difficult decisions but also surround himself with different thinkers, right? And I, I respect that. It reminds me a lot of the uh, uh, the Doris Kearns Goodwin book, "A Team of Rivals," um, about Lincoln. About Lincoln, yeah, and, and how. Now, I'm not comparing Lincoln to Flannery, mind you. (laughs) I get it. But it was a very good book in that it shows you that one of Lincoln's greatest strengths, if not really his greatest strength, was the ability to surround himself with diverse opinions, people who thought differently differently than he did. It it helped him make better decisions, you know, and and it helped him recognize, hey, he's not always right. We always, you know, could could maybe rethink things. And so I, I just think that Flannery's doing a lot of things right now that. Must be done now. Whether the company is successful or not, time will tell. But I, I would not like their chances if he didn't make these decisions. Now that he has made these these decisions and sort of set the table for us, I like what he's doing. I think that history will look back on this as as being the time where things started turning around. If he does sell out of all the businesses that they've talked about, there's going to be a lot of
2: cash to work with. So that's I think that's really what we're going to see out or under performance is yep. what he does with this cash. Um, they've announced which businesses they're going to trim. Now it's time to see what they do with these billions of dollars that they're going to suddenly come 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 upon, and it's either going to be share buybacks or um, you know growth in other the industry that they're keeping, maybe more acquisitions. But um, I doubt it's going to be a higher dividend because that was the first thing they cut. And if you looked at some of these CEOs in the book, The Outsiders, the dividend was like one of the last things on their mind, unless it was the last absolute possibility to return money to shareholders um, and more strategic buybacks rather than just. We have $4 billion. We're going to buy back stock over the next two years." It was like very strategic buybacks, not just blanketed
0: month-over-month buybacks. Thanks for being here, guys. and yep. Have a Absolutely. great Thanksgiving! You do. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Mark 4. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow!